has been such a big investment of my own emotional labor and also my actual physical work labor that you can't help but fall in love with it. And the coolest part was seeing like for the first time our frogs start to sprout their hind limbs and they grow leg buds first. And so they just have these little nubs and we got so excited with our first frog. As soon as he metamorphosed, we were like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to us. So it's all those little victories that really have made it super worthwhile. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. This podcast is sponsored by Project Dragonfly, a master's degree program offered by Miami University dedicated to ecological and social change. Project Dragonfly offers a part-time Master's of Arts in Biology degree focused on conservation or a Master's of Arts in Teaching for teachers. The program is designed for working professionals and can be completed from anywhere in the United States. Learn more at projectdragonfly.miamioh.edu. On this episode of our Conservation Conversation series with the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California, we're moving a little bit inland. We talked to Aaron Lundy of the Aquarium about their programs to conserve the mountain yellow-legged frog. Erin shares her experience working on recovering this important Southern California amphibian and why they are so important. Now please enjoy our conversation with Erin. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. If you don't mind, please introduce yourself. Uh, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Erin Lundy. I am the conservation coordinator for mammals and birds at the Aquarium of the Pacific. I get to work on some of our more focused conservation efforts, including our sea otter surrogacy partnership with Monterey Bay Aquarium. And I also get to work on our mountain yellow-legged frog project, which is a head starting project where we grow up little tadpoles of the mountain yellow-legged frogs. And then we eventually, in partnership with some other agencies, including USGS, are able to release them back to their natural habitat. And one thing that you just told us before we started recording is that you got up at 2 a.m. to move uh, move otters around. So thank you for, for being here. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, live animal work in general is 24 hours a day. And I think that that's something that some people don't necessarily appreciate about our field. Um, and at any given moment, an animal might need something or a FedEx flight might leave at 7 a.m. <laughs> and so we end up needing to wake up early to help move things around. But Whatever helps the animals out. You you mentioned the the yellow, mountain yellow legged frog head starting program, um, and I kind of just want to get an overview before we kind of dive into the the details of that. So, what is a head starting program like? What is it you guys do? So our facility is receiving animals that are essentially larval versions of the mountain yellow legged frogs. We receive tadpoles that are bred at either a different facility. And one cohort that we have here is actually rescued from the bobcat fires that happened in 2020. And both of those cohorts of tadpoles are still tadpoles because the species can take between two to four years or potentially longer to metamorphose from tadpole to frog. That is a very long time for amphibian species in general. Um, but they didn't really have evolutionary pressures 
to get out of the water any sooner because they lived in snowmelt. So there weren't really aquatic predators that were preying on the tadpoles. They could live these very long lives in very cold water. And now there are some threats that were mostly human introduced to their habitat. And so in order to have a more successful release, we want to release them as frogs rather than tadpoles. As tadpoles, they are incredibly vulnerable to predation by trout, which were introduced for sport fishing in like the 1960s, 70s. And trout will just eat just about anything, really, including these big juicy tadpoles that take five years to grow up and get out of the water. So our head starting program is taking those tadpoles that are either bred elsewhere or that rescued cohort, growing them up until they're frogs. And then as soon as they've metamorphosed, the survivorship rate is likely to be a little bit better and releasing them as frogs. So this is the mountain frog group. Um, we have three systems. These two are up and running. This is mountain frog two, this is mountain frog one, and this system will be fully functional and cycling right now, so we're still waiting. Um, but these are about 99 tadpoles that we have that hatched at LA Zoo in April uh, last year. You can see some of them are developing rear limbs. It's a good sign. It means that they will hopefully metamorphose this year. They're pretty cute. Yeah. And then these are the animals that were rescued from the Bobcat fire in 2020. And a lot of them are frogs now, which is awesome. I'm going to very gently open this so you can see the pile of frogs that likes to sit in the sun Ta-da! There's so these guys have UV and heat on a timer to mimic the natural day and light cycles. And when the sun is out, they really have one preferred spot to sit in. Um, we have a variety of sizes in here. They've kind of metamorphosed at different times. And so that third system that we're setting up is going to be for holding some of our larger animals once it becomes a risk of predation on the smaller animals. Yeah, we've got all different sizes. The largest ones in here metamorphosed, I think, in November, October or November of last year. So they were not eligible for release because they still had a tail when we did that release. That's what they eat. So we are making up a mix of uh, rapashi fry food. And then we also use spirulina. And we mix in some vitamins as well for calcium. Um, amphibians have a really hard time absorbing calcium and unless they have sunlight and UV. And so it helps with their bone development. It can cause issues if they don't have sufficient calcium and UV exposure as well. So that's what they're eating primarily. We will also occasionally feed them commercial fish food. This is an insect-based one. We figure why not get them started on both food early. And then our frogs will eat a mix of different types of fruit flies or crickets. And we've been considering mixing in a couple of different insect types for them just to give them variety, practice hunting different types of animals. Um, but yeah, so these are kind of all of the things for our systems. You can see that they're right now running at 54.6 degrees. Um, a little warmer than that because everything's running through the attic, but that's fine. This is our flow rate. We have an RO tower that's designated just for this project. So all of our water is reverse osmosis and then reconstituted and buffered to be a little bit more basic for these animals. Um, everything is plumbed to be automated, so we can actually do water changes without ever having to touch the water, which is cool. So you can see I can add water very easily and drain water pretty easily. I don't ever have to put my hands in the tank, which is great for biosecurity and also minimizing disturbance to the animals. And um, I know that you know this already, but there's estimated to be less than 200 of these animals out there. We have 
99 clad poles in that tank and 45 animals in here. And hopefully with the third tank up, we can increase our capacity to hold more. We're hopeful that we can take about 200 at a time the next time LASU has clad poles. So you, you talked about the head starting program and every, everything you guys do. Um, can you, I guess, to kind of take a step back to talk about the species, uh, you talked about the bobcat fire and how the habitat was kind of destroyed, but what, what is this habitat? Like, what, where is it and what is like, what kind of habitat is it? Yeah, they are interesting animals. And I, to me, they don't live where you imagine frogs living. They live in higher altitudes than most other amphibians and pretty cold um, habitat as well. And so their water is maybe 40 to 50 degrees in the cooler months and can get up to about 60. And they're a pretty aquatic species of amphibian that live very close to water's edge. And they live in riparian habitats at altitudes over a thousand feet in historically the San Gabriel, San Jacinto and San Bernardino mountains. So the Bobcat fire, I believe happened in the San Gabriel mountains in 2020. And there was some area of habitat that was identified as appropriate and actually had mountain yellow-legged frogs there. And my understanding is that that fire burned up about 90 to 95% of the remaining usable habitat for this species. So it was pretty detrimental and um, climate change caused that to be a little bit of a worse fire than anticipated because we were having bouts of huge drought and then we would have heavy rainfall. And those things aren't very conducive to, you know, having a tadpole that needs to live in the water for two to four years of its lifespan. So some of those tadpoles were collected and brought under human care as part of an effort to kind of rescue some of the wild genetics that were still out there. And although those tadpoles were rescued in 2020, we still have some of them that are still tadpoles, but they are finally metamorphosing this year, which is nice to see. You know, you think of amphibians, uh, you think of like the tropics, warm and really wet, but so you don't really think of high altitude, cold, but also Southern California, which is mm -hmm. kind of a paradox there. But um, I do, I feel like I remember it was on, on, um, one of the planet earths where they had, I think it was a toad or a frog that could go and like, it would completely freeze and then just like be in some sort of like stasis. And then like mm -hmm. next season it warms up. He's like, Oh, okay. I mean, go get some more food. So it's not that cold, but it's so, it's so these uh, species are so cool, especially amphibians. They're just such interesting taxa. I think, um, Mountain yellow-legged frogs, I think one of the potential evolutionary pressures to keep them as tadpoles for so much longer is that the tadpoles can actually survive being in nearly anoxic or totally anoxic conditions under a frozen layer of ice. And they will sort of enter that same state of, you know, everything slows way down. And from my understanding, they are much more likely to survive that than the frogs are. And so in these habitats that potentially that top layer of water freezes totally over in the wintertime, it might be nice to be a tadpole until the nice warm springtime until you can metamorphose and come out. So it's funny because people tend to think of amphibians as being these super delicate animals. And in some ways they are. But in other ways, they have evolved around so many different things and they've been around for millions of years. I don't know if you've ever seen a Sicilian, but that is one of the weirdest animals on the entire planet. Very primitive form of amphibian that kind of looks like an eel. Some of them burrow. Some of them are totally aquatic. And that's just a, it's a weird family of amphibians in and of itself. I want to know a little bit more about the species. Like you, you, you talked about how they're kind of in a unique situation where it's, you know, a little bit higher elevation than you'd think. 
in Southern California, cold water. So they're kind of a niche species. And so what do they, what do they eat? What are their, their life cycle? Like how, how are they surviving before the, the fires came through? Well, one of my favorite things about amphibians in general is that they sort of tie together all of these different trophic cascades because as a tadpole, they are primarily eating detritus and algae and whatever they can find along the bottom of like a stream or pond. And as they metamorphose, they stop eating because their entire GI system is changing. And I can't even imagine like that would be the worst puberty to go through where your entire body changes and your entire intestinal tract changes. But they start eating um, insects. And so as adults, they primarily will go after um, terrestrial insects or adult forms of different insects that might live sort of on the surface of the water. So my understanding is that they primarily will eat things like beetles. They might eat things like pond skaters and whatever lives sort of right where they can hunt for them. And I've seen even our frogs start to develop this behavior where they sit in the shallow water with just their eyes out. And I can only imagine what an intimidating predator that might be to a pond skater skating by as they just kind of lunge out and go for those. You mentioned that the... The, the, you mentioned the population within the, the bobcat fire, but from what I understand, they were uh, an federally endangered species before that. So what are the, the threats that are kind of uh, impacting the po- these populations of the mountain-legged frog? That is a really good question with a lot of different answers. Um, one of the main threats that they are facing is the trout predation, and there are still trout present in many of the mountain yellow-legged frog waterways. I believe one of the efforts being done currently to bolster their populations is removal of trout from those waterways in order to give them a safe space to have all of their tadpoles grow up in their natural habitat. Um, Another threat that they are facing, like I mentioned earlier, is climate change. Climate change can not necessarily just mean global warming, although certainly warmer waters can impact these animals' development. Um, But it can also mean that they are moving to higher elevations where potentially their prey is a little less prevalent. It can also mean extreme swings in rainfall and drought. And if you have a waterway totally dry up, those tadpoles aren't going to survive. So those are two of the major ones. And for all amphibians worldwide, another major factor is an introduced fungal disease called chytridiomycosis or chytrid fungus. And that specific fungus impacts most species of amphibians to the point where it can actually be a lethal if the infection load gets large enough. And what it does is the fungus will actually attack the keratinized portion of the frog's skin and make it so they can't osmotically regulate, they can't take up water, they can't dispel water, and it will eventually cause multiple organ system failure and eventually death. So it's not great and it is very prevalent all over. And even these animals that live in very pristine, high altitude, high elevation waterways are still impacted by it because it is extremely contagious and the fungal spores are very modal. Once they get in a waterway, they will move towards the smell of a frog and then they will kind of burrow into their skin, thicken up that skin, kill that frog, but also create more spores at the same time. That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we know a little bit more about the frog and, you know, uh, where it lives, what it eats, all that, but then, uh, you know, what's threatening it, can you talk a bit uh, more about the recovery program that you guys are a part of? Because 
as in any conservation program, it's not just you, it's not just the Fish and Wildlife Service, it's everybody involved that does a lot of really good work. So can you talk a bit about what that program does, how you guys fit into it, but also what is the future of that program and how, uh, what direction you guys are trying to take it? A uh, recovery program like this is a multi-institutional and multifaceted program, right? We need to have more animals themselves. And so that's where institutions like the Aquarium of the Pacific come into play. Um, there are facilities like the LA Zoo that are breeding these animals. San Diego is also breeding these animals. And from those bred animals, we can either release the tadpoles or we can move some of those animals into Head Start programs. The Head Start ideally gives these animals a little bit more of a leg up once released to have better survivorship and recruitment when they are out in the wild. And so that's what we do. But there also needs to be some monitoring done to understand whether or not these animals are actually surviving out in their natural habitat. We also need to be doing surveys to know how many breeding adults are at different sites and maybe finding new sites that we didn't quite know about and what habitat is available for them. Um, the habitat before we release them does need to be deemed as safe and probably that the frogs will survive there if they're released there. And so we work collaboratively with so many different partners on this project. And it's so much work that could never just be accomplished by one institution or one individual. It's been really nice to have this network of people working to save a species. And last year, thanks to all of the collaboration that we did, the aquarium was able to contribute 188 frogs to be released back to their natural habitat. Um, and we released them at the same time as Santa Ana Zoo released some of their animals as well. So releasing a big clutch of animals also hopefully guarantees that there are some animals that survive out of that. So we were pretty happy that we got to work with everyone to make something really big happen because there is estimated to be about 200 breeding adults in their natural habitat. So releasing 188 was great. Yeah, so I was going to say is, you know, you get 188 and, you know, different species that we've talked about a lot of uh, uh, inverts so far. And 188 is nothing when they spawn, you know, thousands, tens of thousands at one time. But for a species that's in peril, like this species, a federally endangered species, when you said there's 200 breeding adults estimated, you just doubled the population. Obviously, not all 188 are going to make it to breeding, all that. But for that time, you're at least giving it a chance. And that's all you can ask for. And that's what is, to me, that's as cool as it gets in this field. It's it's really nice to know that we were able to contribute in that way. I think the recruitment rate is pretty poor, even still. You know, I think it's one to two percent of those animals. So realistically, we probably contributed two to four frogs to the overall population. But that's still two to four frogs that weren't out there before. And that does represent a pretty large proportion of the wild population when you think about it. Um, we are hoping that as our frogs get a little bit older and potentially bigger before we release them, we might be able to pit tag them. And we want them to be larger before we put a, um, a pit tag in them because it's about the size of a grain of rice. And if the frog is only five to eight grams, that's pretty significant. But if a frog is closer to adult size, they wouldn't really notice it. And that would allow us to have some ability to know whether or not our frogs are surviving out there and might give us a better indication of if we need to modify our practices to set them up for better survivorship when they are released. I think that's just the reality of conservation projects, especially, you know, captive breeding and head starting programs is like, you know, you know, like you said, you're contributing two to four frogs, 
which, you know, on the surface to someone who doesn't, you know, not part of this field, that sounds like nothing, but with, when you do that and you guys are, I know you guys are trying to grow your program in conjunction with all these different aspects of this program in terms of the uh, trout removal, crayfish removal, habitat restoration, establishing new release sites all throughout its ha their habitat, that only compounds every year from year to year. So right now it's two to four, maybe in 2025, it'll be a couple dozen. And maybe in the 2030s, it'll be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So the fact that we're building towards that is that's what's so exciting. And so we're like, uh, you know, inspiring. I agree. And it's something to look forward to. Nothing happens in a vacuum and you can't breed a bunch of animals and just release them back to a habitat that's totally destroyed. And so habitat restoration needs to be a huge part of what goes into saving a species. Why save them if there's nothing for them to go back to? But on the flip side, they can also play an important part in that habitat once they're sort of reintroduced to it. So I think that there is a lot of work to be done, but we could not be happier to be doing it. I have never fallen so in love with frogs in my life. And I think people make fun of me here because I have told my friends that I love larval amphibians and that is specifically <laughs> my niche <laughs> interest these days. So it's been a good time and we are growing our program. We're expanding our capacity to house more. So that's awesome. Yeah. So what, what about you? You said you like, you've fallen in love with frogs. Is that, is that a new thing or did you kind of grow up being super into frogs, catching frogs in the backyard kind of thing? Or is this kind of a, how did you make your way into conservation? I guess. That is a good and also complicated question. Um, I grew up in Hawaii and in Hawaii, we are very cognizant of sort of trying to be one with nature, keeping everything clean and really trying to keep the land as it is and appreciating it for what it is. And I think growing up around so many species in peril, like there are so many endemic birds and so many native species that are endangered in some way. And I just grew up as that being kind of common language around me. And I ended up wanting to work with marine animals and potentially being a veterinarian for marine animals. That was like my childhood dream. And I did an internship working around different marine mammals. And I really fell in love with the idea that you could be sort of this conduit to the animals to provide the best care that they could possibly have. Um, you know, for a lot of non-releasable animals, I just want to make sure that their life is great and that they have a very comfortable life and that they are able to get the care that they need and have all their needs met. And so I got into animal care for that reason. And as I was working with marine mammals here at the Aquarium of the Pacific, I was asked one day if I wanted to learn to cover the frog gallery. And I said, sure, why not? That sounds fine. And I know that that area needed a little bit more help. So as I got into it, I realized I really like amphibians. And there was this upcoming project that was the aquarium taking on the mountain yellow-legged frog project. And I got to be part of sort of seeing how that room got built out. I got to see how our systems were set up specifically for this project. And since its inception, it's been hard cycling very cold water tanks. And that was a large part of the first few months of the project is trying to get the tanks to have the right bacteria so that our tadpoles can live. And if you have a fish tank at home, you might know that bacteria really likes to grow in warm water. And as soon as you chill that tank down to 50 degrees, bacteria is not as happy to grow in there. So even just that part of the project was such a huge labor investment on my part. And then learning about the species and getting to meet all of the partners and visiting other institutions and seeing what their setups look like. 
it has been such a big investment of my own emotional labor and also my actual physical work labor that you can't help but fall in love with it. And the coolest part was seeing like for the first time our frogs start to sprout their hind limbs and they grow leg buds first. And so they just have these little nubs um, right where their tail attaches to their abdomen. And those will develop into these very robust, strong legs. And then over time, they start to get what looks like a very angular jawline, but it's actually their forearms developing in their gill pocket. And eventually they'll pop their arms out of their gill pocket. And we got so excited with our first frog. As soon as he metamorphosed, we were like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to us. So it's all those little victories that really have made it super worthwhile. And kind of growing into my position as conservation coordinator, I also get to be involved with some of our otter surrogacy and sea otter population um, repopulation, I guess I should say. So it's, we do a lot of it here and I think that it gets highlighted here and there, but it's a huge part of the reason why we're even working in this field. We wanna help animals, whether they're here or whether they're in their natural habitat. And it is super rewarding to see those animals go back to their natural habitat as well. Aaron, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. We we loved hearing about the, the mountain yellow-legged frogs and seeing them in person is like, they're so cool looking, so cute. So thank you so much. And we really appreciate your time and thank you for all that you do with the aquarium. Of course, thanks for having me on and for all your great questions about frogs. And if anyone ever wants to come to the aquarium and see them, reach out. And I am more than happy to take them behind the scenes to see my frogs. We want to say thank you again to Aaron for talking all about what the Aquarium of the Pacific is doing to help the mountain yellow-legged frog and so much more. Now this episode concludes our series with the Aquarium of the Pacific. We can't thank them enough for letting us into their facilities and showing us all the amazing work they do. So please, please either visit the Aquarium of the Pacific when you're in town or consider donating to help them recover local wildlife and habitats. Visit them at www.aquariumofpacific.org to see how you can help, as they're always taking volunteers. Host is Austin Parker. Producers are Austin and Taylor Parker and Madeline Walden. Music was provided by a Picture Book Studios. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe if you want to help. Thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.